Okay, we're going to jump back into Revelation. Did you guys know that, notice I was gone for a couple weeks? Right? All right, well, I'm back. So um, I listened to Rick's teachings on, Sm- how did he pronounce it? Smyrna? Smyrna? I like Smyrna. Um, and this is, we're going to do Pergamene, or Pergamum, today. Um, I, I saw Rick that got up to the end of the class last week and was out of, uh, actually said, uh, we don't have time for questions. I mean, he just kind of hit the end and just stopped, um, kind of giving me the impression that there may have been some people that had some questions last week. Do you guys have any questions of what we've covered so far? We purpose to uh, open things up a little bit more uh, in this class to Q&A, so if you guys do have something... Um, you know, when I teach that you can just dive in wherever, but was there any questions that were lingering from last week? Okay, I'm going to take your silence as a no. So, before we jump in here, I want to keep before us that the idea of revelation um, is, in fact, uh, a capstone book. Now, what do I mean by capstone? I always like us bringing us back to the centrality of the purpose of what we're talking about here and why and all that stuff so we don't get, we don't get caught up in the minutiae, which is easy to do in Revelation, especially when in American concepts of Revelation because you try to figure out, you know, why the angel's wings had seven feathers and not six and all of these other different things that we try to apply and a lot of times that's okay, but we tend to get really, really bogged down in minutiae. So I want to keep, us, uh, keep this before you and, re- and think of it as this way. Does anybody know what I mean by, if I say something like that, Revelation is a ca- canonical capstone. Does anybody understand what that means? Right. So a capstone is, for lack of anything better, a capstone is the the pinnacle of uh, a building, okay? So what I mean by revelation as a canonical capstone is, what do I mean by canon? The, that comprise the Bible. So revelation is the canonical capstone. It is the book that encapsulates everything that the Scripture talks about. We don't usually understand it in these terms. We usually understand it as like the conclusion or the the end to the story. But it is, in fact, a canonical capstone. And um, I wrote down here, uh, I feel like I could actually teach just from Revelation the entire gospel and do an entire Bible study from Genesis to Jude by just teaching you Revelation. And it's unfortunate, and I have to tell you this, that one of the things that I'm discovering as I've studied, and I've studied Revelation for years, but one of the things that I'm studying this time around and I'm realizing is what a treasure we've lost with the way that we understand Revelation. What an absolute treasure the church has lost by shoving the book of Revelation off to the end of the world 
and not reading it in context of what's going on today and what has gone on since Christ's birth. And to me, it's becoming more and more sad that we are handicapped as a church because we totally don't understand Revelation. And I wrote this down last night just because I wanted to give it... Uh, it's the, uh, Revelation is the capstone of the entire scripture. That, it, that in it, the redemption age of the interadvental period is pictured by using Old Testament prophetic or eschatological imagery through which both testaments are shown to constitute a whole. Revelation reaches back into the Old Testament and pulls the imagery, the eschatological, eschatological imagery from Genesis 3.15 and all the things that are said symbolically and pulls it into I will pay somebody to go get me some of these um, and pulls it into the New Testament and joins a inseparable link between Old and New Testament and makes the entire Bible work okay that's what I have come to understand about Revelation. And when I say that, one of the things that I want to do in my class is whenever we, we come across something in the, in the book of Revelation that speaks to a redemptive principle by using Old Testament imagery, I want to take you back into that Old Testament imagery and show you what Jesus was doing. Remember when Jesus came to the earth, they didn't have the New Testament. So when he quoted Scripture... What did he quote? What did all of the apostles quote? What did Paul reference? All the Old Testament. And we, I think, ne neglect so much what the Old Testament actually says. Because in it, and when Jesus said, in it, you think you find everything. And he's talking about the Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to who he was. Everything in the Old Testament has an eschatological, redemptive focus to it. And it laser beams in on, on Jesus, who Jesus Christ is. Everything. So, I said all that to say that there are a couple things that we're going to cover in an introductory phase today that are, I think are important. Uh, why is this here? That's what I want. Uh, that I think are important. So... The first one of those is the phrase that you find at the end of every... I'll use bread. Um, <gasps> did you see that? I hope this green one works. Oh, it does. Um, there's a phrase that you find at the end of every church, uh, at, at a concluding remark of, uh, at every church. What is that statement? It's the same in every, all seven churches. That too. There you go. He who has an ear. That's an important statement. It has Old Testament ramifications. And it has Jesus, what we call parabolic ramifications. And when you understand this, you'll understand that you'll see a, a, a unique, interesting hole that is formed. Uh, anybody know what the word parabolic? Parable. Parabolic. Parable. That's yeah, not a mathematic term. <laughs> Although it is. Um, 
In this, in this, it has to do with parable. Okay, so let's go through this real quick. The message to all seven churches in Revelation 2 through 3 includes this final, uh, this final statement. To, he who ha- to him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the seven churches or to the churches, right? Um, the clause was also used by Jesus when? When did Jesus use this phrase? Huh? I'm sorry, say that again. When he spoke to the masses, in what form? Parables. Okay. So Jesus spoke in parables to the masses. At the end of the parable, he said, to him who has an ear, let him hear what's saying. And then later, didn't the disciples come to him and say, what does this mean, right? Explain this to us. Okay, so all of this has context with what's being said in Revelation. Um, Jesus, though, took this phrase, and here's where the tie-in to Revelation in the Old Testament goes. Jesus took this phrase from the major prophets, from Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all three of which say, he who has an ear, or speaks of the idea of having an ear to hear. The significance of this exhortation in the prophets was uh, its connection. Oops. Hang on. My laptop just went to sleep. Hmm. I don't want to teach this from memory. There we go. All right. I guess I should move this around a little bit. Um, the significance of this exhortation in the prophets was its connection with the prophets' use of sy- symbolic actions and parables. And as we've said, Revelation is a book that is steeped with eschatological symbolism. The three and a half years is a symbol, the 1,000 years is a symbol. Everything in Revelation is symbolic. Okay, so the idea is when, when, the, when it was stated in the Old Testament prophets, they were giving, they were referring back to when they would like dig a hole in the wall and, you know, climb through it like Ezekiel, whom I'm pretty sure we would not even allow in most of our churches today because he did some weird things. But he, the, the idea of, uh, it tied their message to their actions. It was the idea of this statement. The primary function of these prophets who lived toward the end of Israel's history was to warn Israel of the impending divine judgment. Okay? Starting to say a little bit about Revelation as well. Initially, they delivered their messages of warning in straightforward ways. In the very first par- parts of all three of those major prophets... There is a very definite statement made about the impending doom that was coming upon Israel. All three of them said, wake up, the end is coming. Okay. However, this straightforward way had very little effect on Israel because they were hard-hearted, stubborn, and refused to change their ways. Uh, Consequently, both Isaiah and Ezekiel were then commissioned to make the ears of those who they spoke to dull. And thereafter began to prophesy predominantly by parables 
and symbolism. And I've got some scriptures here if you guys are interested in them. Isaiah 6.10, Ezekiel 3.27. Both of which say, make the hearts of the people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. But when I speak with you, I will open your mouth and you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. He who will hear, let him hear, and he, he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Now, um, when their, uh, when their straightforward, uh, straightforward warnings were disregarded, the prophets were commissioned to relay a message in a way effective only those who already had spiritual insight. So when Jesus tells John to say at the end of every letter, let him who has an ear to hear, what he's saying is, those who have spiritual insight will hear what I'm saying. Okay? These, uh, the way that that works is, is that they had, a, uh, they had a, uh, an effect on gaining the attention of the true believers, causing some unbelievers to repent, which is what we're seeing with the message of each of the churches, but hardening the heart of the rest who refused or lacked the spiritual insight. Okay? And when you bring that concept forward, you have two different types of people that are being addressed in Revelation, do you not? What are those two types of people? Marked and sealed. Right? So... When Jesus tells John to say at the end of all the churches, he who has an ear to hear, those that are marked according to where? Revelation. What's the mark of? There you go. Those who are marked by the beast will become hardened. And those who are sealed by God gain understanding okay in revelation this is um, is the same thing that's going on well we just said that so that was the idea in the Old Testament prophets and it's carried over into the new and I'll just uh, read what I wrote down the use of the phrase and the messages to the seven churches is for the same reason to enlighten the sealed the true Israel, but harden the marked, or the false Israel. Um, speaking through John, Jesus indicated by the phrase that what that indicated by this phrase, what is about to be unfolded before him is parabolic and symbolic in nature. And like Israel, the church has become compromised, spiritually lethargic, and idolatrous because of the straightforward message of the gospel has often gone unheeded. So. We were contemplating, my wife and I were talking about this the other day, and i got to tell you, the Lord has put on my heart this, this idea that the church has just disregarded the straightforward message of the gospel in this day and age. They've just disregarded it. And they've added on a whole bunch of different stuff, like antinomianism, where grace is cheap and free, and we don't have to live holiness, and being straight and narrow is frowned upon. And Rick says it on the occasion when he gets up and says, I'm very narrow-minded. Well, those who hold to scriptural, the gospel of scripture are considered narrow-minded in this day and age. And we're going to become smaller and smaller in number as the church 
becomes more and more compromised. And it's interesting, and I'm, I'm segueing all of this because that's about what we're going to start talking about, is a compromised church in Pergamum, all right? The visions in chapters 4 through 21 then are parabolic developments of the more straightforward warnings given in the message to the churches. That's what I want you to keep in mind. All the visions that we see after we get done with the, with the, the seven churches are parabolic imagery or symbolism of what Jesus is saying to the seven churches to begin with. Now that ties the message of the seven churches directly with the rest of Revelation from, a very, uh, from the very start of Revelation being given. Instead of it being a break in the two where this is significant for us, but afterwards it's all about the end. Does that make sense? So this draws a very distinct parallel between what is being said to the churches and what's coming to John. Here's the, here's the letter to the churches. Here's the gospel. You're being compromised. But the people in the church that are compromised won't hear, so I'm going to start speaking to them in parables. But before I do, he who has an ear, let him hear. Does that make sense? Okay. So, I wanted to cover that. It was something I didn't get to the, before I took off on my vacation. Um, that even the phrase, he who has an ear, directly ties Revelation, uh, the message of Revelation to the Old Testament. Now, Rick, last week, or was it two weeks ago, talked to you about the form of the seven churches. And then this is going to be important. I want to do a quick review. What type of form are the, is the, uh, the literary form are the seven churches written in? Anybody remember that word? Chiastic. Yeah. Depends on how you do the Greek alphabet, but it's chi. Um, so it's chiastic. And basically what it is, is it's A, B, B, A. All right? So, Abba. Um, so let me do this differently. So I'm writing on the board for those of you at home. A, B, B, A. The emphasis is always on this A. All right? So to use Rick's analogy... Um, you cannot serve two masters. You'll either hate, love the one and hate the other, or you'll despise the one and love the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. So he takes this, he embellishes it here, and then he restates it here. Okay? A, then BB to support A. All right, so that's chiastic, and it's, it's done in an X. Now, there's a lot of times in literary form where they where they do what's called an x a b b a and right here they insert what's called an x when they do this in literary form this becomes the emphasis not this this so the x becomes the centrality of the chiastic literary structure okay now, this is really important when you look at the seven churches. So, let's take a quick peek at them. You have Ephesus. Right? And then you have Smyrna. Then you have Pergamum. 
Then you have what? Thyatira. Then you have Sardis. Then you have Philadelphia. And then you have Laodicea. A, A, B, B, X. Okay? Now, we've already done Ephesus and Smyrna. Ephesus was the church that was loveless, right? Laodicea, as we will find, is what? Both of these are in danger of having their witness removed. One, it's actually stated, I will remove your witness. The other one, it's a little bit more vulgar. I will vomit you out of my mouth. Okay? Which, in my book, means I'm going to take away your lampstand. You have Smyrna, that is the persecuted church, but... No rebuke, right? And you have Philadelphia, which we will see, also has no rebuke. But you have these three churches right here, and this is the crux of the message of the, of the chiastic form or the chiasm. Okay? Now, I'm going to erase all this since Rick already did a really good job describing this. you did I followed it I listened to it by the way and my biggest takeaway is well you know how Dean is <laughs> yeah and you said it on this very thing you said we were at lunch and Dean goes hey did you know this was in chiastic form you know how Dean is <laughs> so I was going to say oh, how is he um, anyway yeah, I thought that was funny so, you have now, you have the X, which equals Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. And these three form a very interesting progression that we're going to talk about. They demonstrate the progressive deterioration of compromise. Okay? The progressive deterioration of compromise. What we have... In Pergamum is the allowance of the consideration of false teaching. The guard has been let down. We're trying to be a little bit more tolerant. We want to be more embracing so that we can be more effective. We don't want to be so straight and narrow. 
so narrow-minded. So you have tolerance. Let's just use that word. Tolerance to what's called heterodoxy or heresy. What happens when you start allowing in and becoming tolerant and assimilating false teaching? What happens? What is the natural byproduct? Okay, that is true. Let's look at it in this way. What happens when you have a, a, a field here? It's a nice field and everything's good. It's fertile. You're growing nice wheat. But then all of a sudden you think, hey, somebody just threw, what, weeds in here, right? So you get weeds growing up, right? So we'll just call this seeds. So you get weeds growing up, right? What eventually happens when weeds hit maturity? They seed themselves and they produce fruit. They produce Sin. Oops. Sin. Pergamum was allowing false doctrine, which is a segue and has an, an outcome in the playing out of that compromise, which is sin. And what does sin always lead to? What is it said of Sardis? They are a dead church. That's right. right. This is the central message of the chiastic form of the seven churches in Revelation. This is the warning. This is the danger. This is the thing that, that the rest of springs off into the rest of Revelation because what the rest of Revelation shows is it shows the insipidness, the, the subtlety, the... Um, the unrelenting attack of the enemy on a church and how it starts with a little seed of tolerance. And that little seed of tolerance will develop into full-blown sinful practice. And that full-blown sinful practice will eventually lead to a dead church. And does a dead church have a witness? And does a compromised church have a witness? Not really. Does a sin-filled church have a witness? No. Okay. So, this is the centrality of what's going on now. And this is what the journey that we're about to start on when we deal with these th next three churches. It's the progressive nature of compromise. And not only does this work in churches, this works in you. By the way, if you start to tolerate things of the world, you start to let down your guard, you start to embrace false teaching, if you start to think, well, it's okay for this and this, if you start to live antinomianist, uh, antinomianistic, oh, grace is free, I can do what I want, pretty soon, we're going to start seeing in your life sinful practice. And then pretty soon, 
we're going to be coming with spiritual resuscitations trying to revive you because one day we're going to wake up and realize, oh, you're all of a sudden dead. So don't be fooled. This is where the enemy has us right now as a, as a nation. Pergamum. It's telling us, hey, people are born this way. Hey, science shows that there's more than two genders. Hey, it's a woman's choice. Hey, let's get a little bit less obvious. It's okay to send, allow the systems of the beast to teach your children. Hey, it's okay for you to not be part of a church body because you're so busy making money. We all know you have to live. Hey, it's okay for you to do all of these things that compromise and keep you sharp. Does that make sense? I know I probably got to meddling, um, but I think more and more we're going to have to really, really take take a step up and look at this and say, oh my goodness. Because we are the frog in the frying pan. And the enemy is slowly turning up the heat and we don't even know that we're boiling. So, this has been a, a, a theme that has been driven home to me lately. So, that's where we're going. This is the chiastic form. This is where we're headed. That's what all this means. Uh, one other thing that I did want to say, and I'll just say it in passing is um, Rick, I think, was going to say this, but because of my emphasis on the way things are going, the way that the, the symbolism from the book of Revelation reflects back into the Old Testament, there's this statement in um, um, Smyrna where it says, and you will be thrown into jail uh, for 10 days. I wanted to trace that back. I think Rick was going there, and I think he got sidetracked speaking about something else, but do you know where that statement comes from? Do you know what John is referring to? How many days did Daniel say, test me now in this? I don't want to eat of the king's delicacies. It was 10 days. Yeah. So read that because it's very important because what Jesus is saying is, is that if you just edit abstain for 10 days I, you will be able to be compared to those that are around you and you will find that you are in so much better shape and that's exactly what Daniel did he said test me now for 10 days and the chief came back after 10 days and he said Daniel you are in so much better shape than those who eat from the king's delicacies and that's what Jesus is saying to the church in Smyrna stay don't allow yourself to be compromised by the king's delicacies and you will shine at the end as my witness. And that's exactly what Daniel did. So that's where that comes from. The 10 days is, is a reference back to an uh, actual statement in Daniel. It's symbolic in its nature in Revelation. But, and what Rick did say is true. It is the fullness of or to complete. Okay? Any questions? Comments. Pergamum. Let's start Pergamum. You want to, let's read this real quick. I think it's a good idea to read this. This is not the longest. Thyatira is actually the longest <laughs> for the most inconsequential town in the bunch. 
Um, but the Pergamum text goes like this. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword, that's important. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Do you know how Antipas died, by the way? Just keep this in mind. Rick went over how um, just lost his name. Polycarp died. You know how Antipas died? Any of you heard of a brazen bull? They put him inside a brass bull and stuck him over a fire and roasted him slow. I'm having a hard time trying to think of a worse way to die. And I think it's important that we understand that because these guys just didn't get nailed to a tree and have a sword run through them. They made a sport out of it. So when he says, you did not deny my name even when Antipas was killed, you get the picture. Huh? Oh, did they? Ugh, what a horrible thing. All right. But you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food to sacrifice to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth, which is a direct re uh, reference back to he who has the sharp two-edged sword. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the city. Oh, by the way, there's not much known about the church at Pergamum. I've got like, I don't know, 15 books on Revelation. We don't know where, who founded it. It's probably that Paul founded it somehow out of his base from Ephesus. But... I can't find any documentation that says that's exactly what happened. So we're not going to spend a great deal of time on the church at Pergamum. Pergamum was the capital city of Mysia. Was situated about 40 miles north of Smyrna and about 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea. So as Rick was saying, this, these churches form a horseshoe. We started here at Ephesus. We go to Smyrna. Now we're in Pergamum. Okay? Um, it was built... On a thousand-foot hill that gave a commanding uh, position over the, and I don't even know how to say this, Caicos, Caicos Valley. The Greek name for the, uh, for the city was Pergamon, which means citadel. And Pliny described the city as by far the most distinguished city in Asia. Okay. Uh, it rose to prom prominence in the 3rd century B.C. when it became the capital of the Adelaides, or Ad Adelaides, I don't know how you want to say that, and the center of Hellenistic culture. 
uh, when Attalus III, the king of the Pergamums, who died in 133, when he died in 133 BC, he bequeathed the city to Rome. Okay? That's important. Because after he did this, it became the seat of government, uh, of government of the Roman province in Asia. So, what they say is, if Ephesus was the New York, Pergamum was the Washington, D.C. Okay? It is where the proconsul, proconsul of Rome sat. That's an important. And Smyrna was Santa Barbara. A beautiful little town nestled by the. All right. The, uh, the city was famous for being the birthplace of Galen. Anybody know who Galen is? Uh, who, next to Hippocrates, anybody know who Hippocrates was? Uh, was the most famous physician in the ancient world. Pergamon boasted a library said to contain some 200,000 parchment scrolls. The only other library that rivaled Pergamum's library was the one at Alexandria. Yep. In fact, according to legend, the word parchment derived from the... Uh, Greek word pergamene was actually invented in Pergamum. Okay? So, here's some of the stuff that's important. Well, all the stuff is important. But. Pergamum was the center of three cultic center, center, uh, centers of worship. Some will say four, but I say that mostly it was three. Zeus, I can't remember this guy's name, A-S-C-L-E-P, Asclepios, in which you have, well, I can't even draw that, so I won't do that, and... The imperial cult. Now I wrote this backwards. Actually, this one should be up here. So there were plenty of other religious um, influences because the the Romans and the Greeks were exceptionally idolatrous. So you had um, all of these. Asclepios specifically had a shrine. It was uh, he was the god of healing. And he had a shrine um, and he, uh, that, that people would come to learn the arts of healing from all over the world. And uh, he was known as Asclepios the Savior. Okay, so um, the symbol of the god Asclepios was a coiled serpent. Where do we have a coiled serpent today? The medical department. They still use the Greek symbol of Asclepios I don't know the answer to that. Well, 
Is that why we have that for most of the most of what I read has to do with the the symbol of Asclepius was the symbol of the serpent, which is where we get our symbol for the medical community today. That's what most texts that I read ascribe it to. I've not heard that it went back to Moses. Oh, I'm sure that there is. I would agree with you. This is probably, since we're dealing with a book full of what? Counterfeits. This is probably one of the counterfeits that we see. But this is where we get our medical symbol from this, this deity, this Greek deity. Okay. Um, the other thing that we need to know is that the imperial cult, the proconsul, wielded what was called the Ius Gladii, which was the right of the sword. He could execute justice and judgment at will, and he could condemn you at will. He was the seat of the Roman government, therefore he was the voice of Caesar in this place. So he wielded the power to execute at will or the right of the sword, which is interesting because what does Jesus say of himself? He is the one who wields the sword. Pergamon then was the, was the city most devoted to the Roman imperial cult, and it was the reason that Christians were most likely to be persecuted for their refusal to worship Caesar as God. So this idea of this being the seat of Satan is um, going to have some significant implications based on a combination of these three. But basically... The imperial cult, Rome, in this uh, particular scenario, equals the beast. Okay? Uh, in contrast to Smyrna, where persecution arose from the false Jews, in Pergamum, Christians faced the persecution of Rome um, itself directly. Okay? Um, it is probable for this reason that Antipas was martyred since we know that uh, accused Christians could only avoid death by cursing the name of Jesus. So they would bring him before the proconsul and they would try and force them to curse the name of Jesus. Now it becomes clear that Antipas refused why Jesus said that, uh, about them that you, were, you stayed true to my name. Because the way that they would cause you to... Um, betray Christ was to stand and curse his name. So when Jesus said, I, you have stayed true to my name, that's what he's referring to. All right. Let's jump into the letter. We've got a few minutes, five minutes. We'll get some of this done, and then we'll pick it back up next week. Okay? Zeus, Asclepios, Imperial Cult, Rome, the Beast, Seed of Satan, the ability to wield power at will, which brings us to the first phrase, the word of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay. Um, 
So as we've said, Jesus describes himself in every one of the letters that has a pertinent or an, imp an implication or is important to the circumstances of each given church, right? So when he says, this is the message of the word, uh, the word of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, as we've seen, this matters because they are used to understanding that the Roman proconsul has the right of the sword and probably as his symbol was, that, uh, was an upside-down Roman sword. Okay, so when he says this, this meant something to the believers. Can anybody extract what that might have been? Class participation. Why would this have been something that would have been pertinent to the, to the Christians at Pergamum? Power of life and death. That's one of them. Well, it is. Right. Authority. Authority. What Jesus is basically saying here. Oh, okay. Let, let me go back. So, uh, as we've demonstrated, Jesus uh, descriptively introduces himself at the beginning of each letter in a way specifically pertinent to the church. The loveless Ephesian church, Jesus was the intimate, ever present sustainer. To those facing persecution and martyrdom in Smyrna, Jesus was the eternal life giver who conquered death. And then here in Pergamum Church, Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. In a city where the Roman proconsul had the power to put people to death at will and whose symbol was probably a Roman sword, Jesus is reminding the church that there is a power beyond that earthly exercise of authority. Okay? But in this case specifically, Jesus is describing himself as supreme judge. Having all judicial authority, not only over his church, but over the counterfeit kingdoms of darkness as well. Additionally, as judge, he is here describing himself in such a way as to give indication that he is ready to execute his righteous judgment. The key word here is ready. He hasn't done it yet. So this is a warning. And this takes me back to Romans 2.4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So Jesus is coming saying, I am the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I wield judgment. I am the one to be feared, not the proconsul. And this is important later on because Jesus says it is my judgments that you should worry about more than the sword of the proconsul. And there's a lot of parallels that run through the church of Pergamum that we're going to get to. Okay? So we all understand the, the point of this, right? We all good with that? Any questions? Any concerns? Any rocks to toss? Let's see if I can get through one real quick more. The next phrase is, I know where you dwell, where Satan has his throne. The reason that John describes this as he does is really somewhat unknown. There's a lot of speculation on it. Um, for example, G.B. Caird states that this is due to the fact that the first temple of the imperial cult was built there in 29 B.C. 
He's not saying that Rome or the emperor was thought by John to be Satan, but that Satan was using both to implement his antichrist agenda. Leon Morris gives, uh, agrees with Caird on the first point, adding that Pergamum was in fact the seat of the imperial cult of the entire region, even referring to itself as temple ward of uh, the imperial cult. However, he doubts the second possibility. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I left out that second part. In addition, John understood Satan to be the ancient serpent, and it is therefore probable that his description of Pergamum as being Satan's throne has to do with the city's worship of Asclepius, the serpent god who presided over the art of healing. Leon Morris agrees with the first point, disagrees with the second, because he said there were other uh, cities that also worshipped Asclepius around there. G.K. Beale seems to hold that uh, these two are true, but also that one of the things that is known about the city of Pergamum was on a hill behind the city. They had a temple to Zeus that was built in the shape of a throne. So it was a giant throne temple. So uh, G.K. Beale seems to suggest that what is being referred to as the seat of Satan is that throne. I think it's a little bit of all three, myself. I think that uh, Sclepios, um, as the serpent, symbolized by serpent, I think Zeus had it having his throne-shaped citadel there, and I think the, the seat of the Roman proconsul all added to the statement that it is the seat of Satan. The point here seems to be that Pergamum Church dwelt in a city where Satan himself, through his beast, the Roman state, was bringing persecution directly against the Christians. This, as we said, it would be a, of a different kind of persecution than we saw in Smyrna. Right? Do you guys understand what I'm saying there? Smyrna, the Romans weren't necessarily against the Christians. It was the false Jews that were coming and saying, these guys, these guys, these guys. And it was kind of like Pontius Pilate with Jesus. Oh, when will these guys stop? All right, I'm going to kill this guy so you guys will quiet down. That was kind of the scenario in Smyrna. Pergamon was totally different. They were actively looking for Christians. They were actively, the Romans were actually looking for Christians to persecute. Yeah. Yeah. 40 miles. Okay, we're going to stop there for today. We'll jump back in uh, next week to the idea of holding fast to my name. We've already talked a little bit about that, but I want to make sure that we covered. Is there any questions that we have before we close? We'll start talking about some of the compromise and some of the things that Pergamum found itself in next week. So, all right, Father, we're grateful. That you are able to keep all of those whom the Lord, whom your Father has given you. And that you will lose none. And in these days of compromise and in these days... of deception we know that you hold your own and that you keep us secure in your hand Father we're grateful 
for your sustaining power. In Jesus' name, amen.